Highland, it is my joy to welcome back to the pulpit someone who is already dearly loved among us, and that is our friend Emily Hall McGee. Emily served as Highland's minister to young adults from 2009 to 2015, and she now serves as the pastor of the First Baptist Church on Fifth in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. We are thrilled that Emily is back with us at Highland today with her husband, Josh, and their children, Liam, Annabelle, and Silas. Emily is actually a third-generation Baptist pastor in her family, following both of her parents and her grandfather into what they call the family business. But Emily actually started out training to be an opera singer. She says that it was there, far from the church life of her childhood, among the artists and creatives who were hungry for God's story of justice and weary from the church's narrative of exclusion, that she felt called by God into this sacred work. To know Emily is to love her. She is a creative, visionary leader with a spirit that lights up the room. I could see that just as she lit up the hallways this morning. And she has a heart that sings for justice and love for all God's people. Emily dearly loves the church for the messy and beautiful thing that it is. And she lives with this contagious and courageous kind of hope for all that the church can be. And I'm so very grateful to call this tremendous minister my friend. Emily, welcome back to Highland. It is a joy to have you with us today. We'll hear now this scripture reading from Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary people... They were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. When they saw the man who had been cured standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they ordered them to leave the council while they discussed the matter with one another. They said, what will we do with them? For it is obvious to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable sign has been done through them. We cannot deny it. But to keep it from spreading further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, and they ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. After threatening them again, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all of them had praised God for what had happened. When they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Highland, this is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, beloved Highland Baptist Church. 
Good morning. What a profound gift it is to be with you here today for worship, back in this jewel box of a sanctuary. I am so grateful to my friend, Mary Alice, for the generous words of welcome, for the invitation to be here. Um, I say back to you the words you just said to me, to know Mary Alice is to love her. And Highland Baptist Church, I commend you on your call of this tremendous minister as your pastor. Well done. I give thanks, too, to the generous staff for your welcome today, for the kind hospitality of the Harson family, for hosting us. We are a lot, and they are very dear. Um, and to you, dear church, for holding space for our family to return to our old Kentucky home. We spent time on Friday afternoon roaming around town, and little Annabelle, who left here as a six-week-old, was doing cartwheels down the Big Four Bridge on Friday afternoon. This is the place that shaped our first years together, and it is clear to every one of us in our family that Louisville will hold a piece of our heart always here in this place and with you. So thank you for the invitation back. This is the season in the liturgical year when we begin rounding the corner to Christmas. I saw some of you this morning even in your Christmas sweatshirts as we were driving around town. We saw some of you with your Christmas lights up. We know that our hunger for the season of light and hope that breaks into the darkness is real. And Advent is but a couple of weeks away, but we find ourselves in this long season after Pentecost, here on the 25th Sunday after Pentecost, you might say the dog days of Pentecost, where we are listening still to the gifts of the Spirit for our living, discovering how the Spirit of God is advocating and moving and nurturing and breathing in our midst. And so today, we go back with those first Christians to the early days of Pentecost, with the death and resurrection of Jesus so close on their lips and in their hearts, as the emboldening breath of the Spirit calls a new movement into being. All came upon them, Acts tells us, this generation of our great cloud of witness who found their tongues loosened, their common life together strengthened, and their calling made clear. As Mary Alice read for us, this account in Acts chapter 4 tells us of Peter and John who were in, in the midst of proclaiming the good news of the resurrection, and those in power did not understand their source, because power structures often don't understand the source. So annoyed are they. The, the text tells us they're annoyed. I love that word, that the religious authorities of Jerusalem, by Peter and John's proclamation of the crucified and resurrected Jesus, that they arrested them. They arrested Peter and John and then brought them before the council to question them about their source of power. Verse 13 says this, Now when they, or the council of the religious authorities, saw the boldness of Peter and John 
and realized they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. Did you notice what tipped them off? What caused those authorities to recognize them as companions of Jesus? It was their boldness. Their boldness here and there and all throughout the stories of Acts of these early Christians. Boldness is this central virtue. And so we have to ask, what does it mean? What does this kind of boldness mean? Well, in the original Greek, that uh, a Greek word which I wrote down, but I'm not sure I have the, the uh, strength to say it for you today. It's a little long. Uh, it meant to speak openly or freely or fearlessly or without constraint. We're told that those first Christians, they proclaimed boldly, they spoke boldly, they prayed boldly. And then as Paul writes to the church at Corinth, He says, since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. You see, for them, boldness is this core expression of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It is a posture of their life. It is this essential marker of resurrection. It's the MO of the Spirit is that of boldness. Now, some 2,000 or so years later, I wonder if this is how we understand boldness as an expression of our faith, particularly in the life of the church. And I wonder some questions. Do we, do we perhaps confuse ourselves by thinking that boldness must mean that we must say the loudest words or take the biggest actions Do we fool ourselves into thinking that boldness must be that which is polarizing or political or drawing the attention of the masses at every turn? Do we silence ourselves by thinking that there must be some grand scale of our boldness, that we're not really living into our faithfulness until we're really doing it, that boldness must be successful to be worthy? And so I wonder, what if instead, what if boldness became the way in which we act and we speak and we move and we live? What if the gift of our boldness is in its clarity and its courage, its audacity and its risk in whatever volume or speed or size best fits the shape of our obedience? What if living boldly shakes us out of those tendencies that we confessed earlier that Perry beautifully wrote for us, those tendencies toward fear and worry and apathy and anxiety, and gives us the courage to do, as Cornell West said on the cover of your bulletin, to step in the name of love as if you may land on nothing, yet you keep stepping because you cannot keep from doing so? What if boldness becomes the way in which we put our stake in the ground. We say, this matters, and we give ourselves the grace to do, as Bill Coffin said, to risk something big for something good. What if that kind of boldness, the stake in the ground kind of boldness in whatever volume or shape or size, what if that 
becomes our primary orientation toward the world as followers of Jesus. Not because we're convinced that it's the best way to live or the right way to live or the most successful way to live, but because it is the faithful way to live. What if boldness becomes the way that we proclaim the truth we know that the worst thing is never the last thing, that in Christ God is making all things new, that our final stop in this life is never the crosses of death, but always the tombs of resurrection. So what if? Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story of life in bold community. In this story, beyond the, the long narratives of planting churches and birthing nonprofits in the community and sending missionaries and, and calling members to serve, this one is a story of reckoning, of reimagination, and of resurrection for the First Baptist Church on Fifth in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. For you see, when we realized that the buildings that we once had built as a church were draining the church of hopeful energies for ministry, we did, as our gospel reading uh, said earlier, in this apocalyptic fashion when stones began to fall from buildings, we tore down two of our facilities. We released our grip on what we had so that we could open our hands to what might be. And when we realized that the story of welcome and celebration of all people in the fullness of who they are was a story that we lived inside our walls but did not intentionally tell outside our walls, we spent our pandemic months talking and praying and discerning and lamenting, out of which has come a congregationally written confession of identity. To be clear to the world, about who we are, how we sense God calling us, what the shape of bold love should look like. It is a confession of identity upon which we will vote this week to affirm. For you see, in bold community, we could not keep from speaking about what we had seen and heard. Let me tell you another story of life in bold community. It is a story of a 128 years of public witness at the corner of Grinstead and Cherokee, with crosses on your lawn and justice spilling from your pews. It is a story of you, after being wounded and harmed by those who bear the name of Christian, you who stepped with unimaginable courage inside these stone walls to find love once again and you who welcomed with open arms. It is a story of the saints in this beloved congregation, too many to name. We know them, we hold them in our hearts. The saints that rise as one to cheer us onward as you sing. Saints like Jim McBee, who was serving as a deacon when the deacons were asked years ago to consider blessing children of same-sex couples. And in all his steadfast love and wisdom, Jim says, we are a church. We dedicate babies, don't we? It's a story. 
of prioritizing the lives of young adults with a place and a people with whom to belong. It is a story of cultivating the well-being of children and teenagers with spaces that spark their imagination, with shepherds and guides who tell them the stories of Jesus and sing for them the songs of faith so that in their own time they may claim Jesus as their own. It is a story of the work of justice, of reconciliation and reparation, of healing for those in recovery and hope for those who need a witness of what can be. It is a story of calling the first woman in your history to be your pastor. It is a story of boldness that proclaims with your very lives the witness of Christ. Now, these are but two stories of churches in all their messy imperfection. And I could stand here all day, although I won't, and tell you story after story after story of communities of Christians who took the posture of boldness and lived that out over time. But I I caution us, because how easy it would be to look behind us and relish the bold witness of our past, how tempting it would be to tell and retell these stories, saying to ourselves, weren't we bold back then? How simple it would be to let these become the stories we live within and move and have our being. But oh, how transformative it would be and it will be to summon all the Spirit's boldness from the wellspring of our past and allow it to overflow with courage and clarity and bravery and risk and community for such a time as this. Scholar Willie Jennings reminds us that Peter's boldness is not a result of character refinement or moral formation, nor that he is staring down his enemies with some sort of epic courage, for indeed there is no such thing as individual boldness for followers of Jesus. Now, of course, each disciple can and should be bold, but their boldness is always a together boldness, a joined boldness, a boldness born of intimacy. That's what I see in you, Highland Baptist Church, a joined boldness. Willie Jennings continues, the modern lie of individualism is most powerful when we imagine that boldness comes from within. It does not. It comes from without. It comes from the Spirit of God. And so we must practice. We must practice individually and communally. And so I invite you today to listen to your life, to think about the shape of your life, and ask yourselves some questions. Where am I feeling a certain stagnation or apathy or indifference? Where am I falling too easily into the patterns and the rhythms of my living? Where might I need to invite God to step into those places and press me beyond what I need to discover? And then I ask you together to consider and to look at one another and to be together and show up for each other and ask each other, 
What bold dream do you have for Highland Baptist Church? What witness can Highland offer to this community that no one else can do? What is Highland's to give and what might my part of that be? Let me tell you one final story. It's the story of a woman named Grace Thomas, a gentle Southern Baptist woman, the second of five children born in Birmingham, Alabama, to a dad who was a streetcar conductor and a mom who kept the household. Back in the 1930s, Grace married and moved out. She left Birmingham and moved to Atlanta, where she worked as a clerk in the Georgia state government, which sparked her imagination for politics and for law. That interest led Grace to night school at the local law school where she painstakingly completed her degree over years of study. In those years, her family wondered aloud, Grace, what are you going to do with that degree? And they were shocked when she announced, that her, she announced her intention to run for governor of the state of Georgia in 1954. Now, Grace was one of nine candidates that year, the only woman, of course, and among all the contentious issues that captured the attention of the Georgia electorate, there was one that was the loudest, that of the famous case of Brown v. Board of Education, where earlier that year the Supreme Court had declared that racially separate but equal schools were in fact unconstitutional a decision which paved the way for integration in the public schools. All eight men in the campaign proclaimed angrily against the ruling. And it was only Grace that said the decision was just and fair, one that ought to be embraced by the good people of Georgia. She even had a catchy slogan, say Grace at the polls. (laughs) And yet... Grace came in dead last that year. Her family was grateful and relieved. You must have gotten it out of your system, right? They said to Grace. Well, she hadn't, though. The 1962 governor's race came around, and Grace decided to run again. By that point, the civil rights movement was growing, and voices like hers were increasingly mainstream. She still endured a barrage of threats, folks loudly resisting her calls for harmony and reconciliation among races. Again, she finished last, but her campaign stood as a testimony to goodwill and the possibility of what could be. Along the way, Grace made a campaign stop of the 1962 race in the small town of Louisville, Georgia, where there in the center of the town was the old slave market the tragic place where innocent lives were held captive, prisoners of a system that evilly exploited some for others' gain. And that was the spot where Grace decided to give her speech, proclaiming to the hostile crowd around her, the old has passed away and the new has come. This place, she says, represents all about our past, over which we must repent. But a new day is dawning, a day when Georgians, white and black, can join hands and work together. Out in the crowd came an angry shout. Are you a communist? And she was mid-sentence. Grace paused and said, no, 
No, I'm not. Well, then, where'd you learn all those gall-darned ideas? And Grace thought about it for a moment. She raised her eyes and scanned the horizon in front of her. And just above the people's head, she pointed to the steeple of the nearby church. I learned it in Sunday school. Highland Baptist Church, your boldest days are not the ones behind you, however wonderful they were. Your boldest days are the ones in front of you. And friends, I call you and challenge you on behalf of God through the power of the Spirit to live into your boldness as a people, not because it's the best way to live or the right way to live or the most successful way to live, but because it is the faithful way to live. And just think what God might do. Now to God, who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we could ask or imagine. To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.